Good morning. Man, it's great to see you guys this morning. You got your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 23. We're continuing to study through our series on the church and the indicators of what make a New Testament church. And so when we got to the indicator of evangelism, we've hit the pause button and we're going to dive into evangelism and particularly recognizing contextually where we are and why that's important, particularly in regard to how we speak the good news to our city. But I want to give us a little uh, help on the front end. If you're new to our church, what I have to say to you here is very, very important that you understand our teaching about these indicators of the New Testament church and particularly about how to do evangelism more effectively in our city is not behavior modification. It's vital that we understand that we're not just teaching that we do certain things, we do certain activities, in hopes somehow that we're going to please God. Our evangelism has to happen out of a joyful delight in Christ, not some dreadful sense of duty. Evangelism that comes out of duty is cold and dead and lifeless. It says, oh gosh, I have to do this, or God's not going to be happy with me. And if I don't do this, things are going to go wrong because God's going to try to get even with me. He's going to even score and all manner of just ugly dead things. That's not what the Bible teaches. Our proclamation of the good news has to flow out of a joyful delight in Christ because there is absolutely nothing better than we see because we've been given eyes to see that people are feeding on dust and death and there is bread and life to be had in the bible this principle is seen from genesis all the way to revelation and it's the order that really orders who we are and how we do this work and it's a little grammatically nerdy so bear with me if you've been at three rivers a long time you've heard this before and if you're new this may be fresh and i will explain it the indicative comes before the imperative, and you cannot reverse that order. And what that means is the nature of something, its essence, what it is, comes before commands to obey anything. In other words, what we find is our identity in Christ, what God has done for us in His glorious work of the gospel, and who we are in Him always comes before His commands to obey. You're going to see that in Exodus 20 at the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh your God who purchased you, who bought you, who redeemed you out of the house of slavery. I'm your God, you're my people, therefore, boom, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments, meaning who they are comes before any sense of obedience, and the point is their obedience flows out of the newness of who they are. It's a delight to obey God because we're his, he's ours, and we have been put together in this glorious salvation relationship. In fact, that's how Paul writes what Paul writes. That's why he writes it the way he writes it. That's why Romans is structured the way Romans is structured. For 11 chapters, it's a about our salvation. It's the justifying work of the cross. And then chapters 12 through 16 is all about how we obey that because the indicative comes before the imperative and you can't reverse the order. The reverse order is the dark kingdom. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to believe you do these things, God's going to bless you because you do them. You do these things, God's going to like you because you do them. That's not what the Bible teaches. So in our teaching evangelism, please hear that we're not teaching behavior modification. We're not saying go do these things and God's going to like you. In fact, we're saying the opposite. What the Bible teaches us is we do these things because we're his and we have a new heart and he's changed us and we're new creatures and it's a joyful delight we found the treasure hidden in a field and you need to find it too because if you don't find that treasure you can miss out i found life and you need life and i want to show you the way to life 
And when we understand that, it makes the passages that Jesus is giving to us in a prophetic voice easier to understand and obey because we understand Jesus calling us to a heart of joy and delight from which we will obey Him. Evangelism happens joyfully and effectively from the person who delights in Jesus. Evangelism done out of duty is cold and smells bad and is ugly. Evangelism done out of joy and delight in Christ smells like life because it is birthed out of life. If you uh, have access, notes are available for you, missjolly.com. You can go there and look at them and you can follow along with me. So if you're feeling like obeying these indicators that we're talking about as some manner of dreadful duty, I want to help you out. I want to make sure you understand that these indicators, and particularly the one we're focusing on now, evangelism, is birthed out of this good news of the gospel. And that is, there is one God, there are not many gods. And this God has revealed himself to us as Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Jesus, the perfect creator of all things, because man disobeyed and he rebelled in the garden, all things broke. And Jesus made a promise that in the fullness of time he would come, that the descendant of Eve would come and he would take on flesh and he would enter time and space and he would live a perfect sinless life. He would crush the head of the serpent and he would go to the cross and die in our place for our sin, be buried and on the third day rise and ascend to the right hand of the Father and there provide salvation for all who would turn away from the dark kingdom and come and believe in him. That's the core and essence of the good news of the gospel that takes people from death to life that takes them from blindness to sight. And therefore, if you are operating out of duty, believe this good news and be transformed, and then you'll begin to operate out of delight and find there is an infinite reservoir of energy and life from which to simply obey what God has given us to obey. Now, we've been talking about cultural Christianity, right? <clears throat> and how we engage the gospel, how we preach the good news to our city. That is the epitome of cultural Christianity or nominal Christianity. That is Christianity in name only. And we've been talking about some barriers of cultural Christianity. So last week, we set up Matthew 23. Today, we want to walk through Matthew 23. And we want to see in Matthew 23 some barriers that were erected in cultural Judaism in a time and place that kept people people out of the kingdom of God and see if in that the word of God will show us some cultural barriers in our city and perhaps in our lives that we can begin by his grace to knock down and get out of the way so that people can hear and respond to the good news. So Matthew chapter 23, I want to provide you a little expositional note here, a little extra that may help you as you read your whole Bible. Jesus teaching in the blessing of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and these woes, these curses of Matthew chapter 23 should help you to see what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 because Jesus is the one who gave Moses Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Jesus is now coming here and he's preaching from the text of Scripture what he has already given in the scriptures when he talks about the blessings of the kingdom of God and blessings for obedience and the Beatitudes and then these curses or these woes in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus never, ever, ever departs from the text. He never departs from the text. He's always preaching from the Bible. So when we read this passage, understand that Jesus is preaching to a people in a setting from the Bible so that they can hear his word and have an opportunity to knock down these things that are keeping people out of the kingdom of God. The spiritual leaders 
When Jesus entered, time and space have become pawns of the Roman Empire. And they've been manipulated into keeping the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, with religious concessions, fake freedom, and fake power through access to Pilate and Herod to voice their desires and their complaints. And so they have become vassals of the Roman Empire for Rome's own purposes. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. AD 70 would teach them how fake it all was when Rome decided they were done with the Jewish problem and the troubles that they constantly brought to their republic by leveling Jerusalem, killing everybody they could lay their hands on and chasing the remaining survivors out of the city into the Judean wilderness to the fortress of Masada where there would be a final ugly end. Jesus knows this is coming. He's prophesied about it in Matthew chapter 24. And he's on the verge of going to the cross to provide the sacrifice for sin at the hands of the Father to pay for the sin of all those who will believe in him and come to him by faith. And this is the passionate setting Jesus preaches Matthew 23 from. Perhaps the Pharisees plot to catch Jesus in his words in Matthew 22, 15 to 22 regarding whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not is a catalyst that sets the stage for Jesus to speak prophetically to the people like he sent Isaiah to do, like he sent Jeremiah to do, like he sent Ezekiel and Amos to do in order to win his people back. And it's in that setting, that passion, the setting of the scriptures that he has already inspired that he, he gives us Matthew chapter 23. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to look along with me as we look through Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to read a section at a time and give you our observation of these cultural barriers that were keeping people from the kingdom of God. And let's see if the Lord will, by his word, reveal some of those barriers to us so that we could tear them down by grace and be better evangelists to our city, our state, our country, and our world. Matthew chapter 23, our first barrier we're going to take a look at, we're going to see in verse 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now a note here, Jesus is being very sarcastic in a holy way. I know sarcasm is not always used in a holy fashion in our context, but, but the Bible uses sarcasm as a tool linguistically to get people's attention sometimes. God does it repeatedly in the Old Testament. Here, there's a very sarcastic tone grammatically because Jesus is clearly not telling them to obey the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He's saying this with some biting irony, some incredible sarcasm. They sit on Moses' seat, so do whatever they tell you. That's kind of the tone that it's coming out as. It's going, hey, they sit on Moses' seat, but we all know what they're teaching is not what Moses taught. So he says, observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. First barrier I want to draw your attention to is that they preach extra-biblical teachings, and they don't actually practice them. They're preaching extra-biblical things, and they are not actually practicing them. One of the parallels you may see between them and us is they have a lot of teaching, a lot of information. They have a lot of how-to's 
but they're not actually doing all their how-tos. In fact, these guys had catalogs of books on every possible scenario on how to practice the basic commandments God gave to his people, 10 of them. They had extra biblical documents that go into massive detail and massive teaching on every possible scenario. And they never practiced them. They were how-to heavy, but they never really did the how-tos. Another way you could say it is they were knowledge heavy and obedience light. They had a ton of information, but they simply did not obey what they knew. There's no shortage of Christian spiritual information for you today. There are 500 spiritual Christian devotionals you can go buy. And I find it interesting that we, when we buy those kind of things, spend more time reading another author's words about the Scriptures than we actually spend reading the Scriptures. And it could very well be we're knowledge-heavy and obedience-light. In fact, what we're going to find here is it's no good for us to continually bring teaching after teaching and how-to after how-to if we're not doing the basic things that God has given us to do, extra-biblical teachings, and actually not practicing them. Second barrier I want you to see will be in verse 5 to 12. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That is so difficult. In other words, all these things that they are doing, they're doing them so that other people see their spirituality. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What's a phylactery? A phylactery is a little box. It could be leather or wood that they made because the scriptures say to keep the Lord's word in front of you at all times. They literally made little boxes to put little scraps of scripture that they pinned on a sheet of paper, rolled up and put in this box to keep it in front of them. And it was very visible, easy to see. And so the fringes and tassels on their garments, they made them long so people could see them. And they had these things mounted on their foreheads, right? We get our cool little tattoos and our Christian t-shirt that's got Bible verses on them. And people see it and they think we're spiritual. We got our phylacteries on our forehead and our tassels long and people think we're spiritual. And they love the places of honor at feasts and at the best seats in the synagogue. We go to the banquets, this is Pastor Jolly. Mm, must be spiritually important. And greetings in the marketplaces. They see you on Twitter, they retweet you. A thousand likes on that post. And we love to be called rabbis by others, but you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you're all brothers. Here's Jesus alluding to the priesthood of the believer. You all, all of us ought to be teachers of God's word because we all share the same Holy Spirit. There's no spiritual class warfare in the kingdom of God. Title does not say one is above or below the other. We're all priests of the Lord Jesus if we're in Christ. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. They had spent time making sure people saw they were the spiritual elite. They had the degrees. They had the letters on their name. What's this barrier? This barrier is they practice spiritual things for the sake of being thought of as spiritual. 
In other words, their motivation was to get all the stuff, to wear all the garb, so that it might possibly look like they're spiritual. Or even to be an indicator on their arm or somewhere on their body to remind them of the gospel. Can I just say this? If we need external markings to remind us of what has made us new, we might not be new. They practice spiritual things for the sake of being taught of as spiritual. They do their deeds to be seen by others. This happens far too often in the visible manifested kingdom of God in the local church where we mimic customs of the dark kingdom and we baptize them in Christian language and we put them on display as though somehow I'm more spiritual because of it. Preachers preaching sermons of people that they admire or sermons they happen to like and they're not theirs and maybe putting their name on it and it's called plagiarism and it's a common practice it happens in this city it happens with things I post and things I write because I don't copyright anything I do I don't sell it people take it and use it and put their name on it and don't think our city doesn't know they do because we want people to see us as spiritual or think of us as writers or think of us as publishing information And what it looks like is zero integrity, zero authenticity. And we practice spirituality so that people think we're spiritual. And Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew 6. If you pray to be heard by others, you're going to get your reward. And that is you were heard by others, but you were not heard by God. Number three, we see this in verse 13. They make the kingdom inaccessible. They make the kingdom inaccessible. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The language here is literally like shutting a door. When he says you shut the kingdom in their faces, the picture Jesus is giving us is they're walking up to the door and we shut the door in their faces and we keep them out. They were making the kingdom of God inaccessible by all these extra biblical how-tos and perceived spiritualities and people who were intrigued by Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees were pushing them away. In John 9, the man born blind, they threatened to throw them out of the synagogue if they in any way exalted Jesus. Shut the kingdom in their faces. Get out of our church. Get out of our building. You can't be that. You don't fit. Is there anything in our practice that shuts the door on people who would be otherwise interested in Jesus? Do we take wrong political positions? Do we highlight something we ought not highlight instead of highlighting Christ? Have we bought the lie that perhaps the kingdom of God is manifested in one side or the other of some other argument that it's part of another kingdom? Does our hospitality, does our hospitality, does our hospitality, I promise I spelled it hospitality. It's not hospitality. Does our hospitality keep people outside? When people come in, do they feel like I belong? If not, we're shutting the kingdom in people's faces because God welcomes to himself any who would come and believe by faith. 
Do we welcome everyone as though Jesus is welcoming them? Does our sin provide an atmospheric barrier that repels people who might otherwise come to Jesus? Sin is atmospheric. You've been around here long enough, you've heard me say that a hundred times. And you will begin to see and recognize in the scriptures that it's not just merely the physical manifestation of things, it's the things that are hidden. Ministry never advances on the back of good tactics. Ministry only always advances through the hidden holiness of saints who love God more than anything else. Which is why you see in our nation a person who is over 5,000 people who show up to some event and you discover rottenness in their background and the 5,000 scatter. It's because it was all fake. Sin is atmospheric and it can create an atmospheric barrier and shut people out of the kingdom of God. There's something life-giving about holiness. Number four, we see in verse 15 that they were mission-minded but missing the kingdom. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They were mission-minded. The Pharisees and scribes went on mission trips. They did in-city mission projects. They took excursions to win converts. Jesus uses a word here, proselyte. That word proselyte is literally the Greek word proselyte. Like it's Greek to English. It's called transcribing. It's just transcribed straight from Greek into English. Some translations use the word convert. I think it's important to note here that Jesus distinguishes in the Great Commission to go make disciples from what the Pharisees were doing and scribes were doing in making converts. He distinguishes between the two. They were doing mission projects and missing the kingdom. They were going out and doing, but what they were doing in proselytizing and what a convert is in a proselytizing fashion is a person who takes on an external look with no real internal transformation. Jesus taught us that the mission is opposite. We're to make disciples. A disciple is one who literally disciplines themselves to follow one who has so changed them that they can't help but come after him. They were mission-minded, but they were missing the kingdom of God. Just because we do mission projects doesn't mean we're doing the kingdom of God. There is a call in our work to come to Jesus and be transformed, to see the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price, that there's something to be had here that creates joy, and we come after the Lord because He is worthy, and He's infinitely good, and He's amazing. He's changed me. You need to know. You're eating sand, and He's got bread. You're drinking air and he has living water, right? And so they were mission-minded, but missing the kingdom. Number five, we see this in verse 16 to 22, they taught false doctrine. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You can already see there's a problem. They're focusing on swearing according to the gift, not the God and His place of worship. He says, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? 
And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. They were teaching false doctrine. They were using language and concepts taken from the text of Scripture, giving, sacrifice. And they had radically missed the point. This is the nefarious nature of false teaching. It uses Bible language, but is a tick or two off true north. An example will be, and I've got to be very careful about taking too much time with this one, be Matthew 18, 20. So often in our context, this gets quoted where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, am among them. And how it's used is that when a small amount of people are gathered, the Lord's there. That is not what that passage means. What you have to do is you're going to have to go over to Matthew, or Deuteronomy chapter 15. And you're going to have to read this passage and understand something. When Jesus is talking about dealing with sin, he pulls, remember, he never leaves the text. He never leaves his word. He's preaching from Deuteronomy 15, in which he gives instruction on how to deal with somebody who has broken the law. And he says they're never convicted without the evidence of two or three witnesses. And when he comes over to this passage, when you're dealing with sin, make sure you deal with it in community. Make sure there are people who understand and know. And he says, when you obey my word, I will be there making sure it's effective. That's what that passage means. But when we teach it as something it's not, we use Bible language, Bible words, and we're two ticks off true north, and we're off base. And when we do that, particularly in public, we are teaching people false things and in essence shutting the door of the kingdom in their faces because they cannot believe untruth and come to Jesus at the same time. Does that make sense? It's important we understand these things because they are barriers to people hearing the gospel. Number six, they ignored the practical love of neighbor in favor of lesser forms of giving to the Lord. Verse 23 to 24, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They've turned giving into these meticulous practices of giving herbs. But you've missed justice and mercy and faithfulness. And Jesus said, which one's more weighty? It's the latter. And he was clear about this when they were giving at the temple. And there was the poor widow who put her last penny in. And all these other people with affluent resources given their tenth of their mint 
and their dill and their coins. Jesus said, who gave the greatest? It was the poor widow who gave everything. That one penny was more than all the 10% of money and resources. Why? Because it's never about the money and resources. It's about a transformed heart that says, Jesus is better than life. And Jesus said, that's more. That's more. Right? And so they ignored the weightier issues for coin, for resources, for stuff. We make our devotion to the Lord about the externals, and the internals are off. We shut the kingdom in people's faces and we teach them it's okay to be hypocrites. Number seven. They were guilty of skin deep righteousness, verse 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, and inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside, that the outside also may be clean. They were guilty of skin deep righteousness. They observed all the external rituals. They looked the part. They had the phylacteries, the robes, the long tassels. They prayed out loud in public and they prayed pretty prayers and people wanted to pray like them and they showed up at all the right synagogue times. They did all the right stuff and Jesus said the truth is they're full of hypocrisy and uncleanness and foulness and lewdness. In other words, sin is atmospheric. Internal hiding is an, evan is an evangelistic barrier. I'm shocked and amazed at the image of God discernment unchristians have about our lives. Why? Because all creatures, human creatures, all humans, are born, created, conceived as image bearers of the living God. And the fact that they can pick up on a spiritual vibe in a room or in an individual is absolutely a work of them being created in the image of God. And when we seek to do evangelism and bring people with the gospel into the kingdom of God and there are things we're hiding and there are things that are bubbling under the surface, it is a barrier and we shut the door in the faces of people who might otherwise come into the kingdom. Number eight and finally, this is verbose, I can't say it any other way. I tried to make this shorter, so I'm just going to read it for you. It's in the notes. They condemn themselves by blindly testifying that their fathers were guilty while doing the same thing to Jesus who sent the prophets to their fathers while believing they're actually being different. In other words, they are self-deceived. Let's read it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in those days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. If I'd lived them, I wouldn't have done that. Fools. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. Here in verse 33, when Jesus calls them serpents, you need to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. When the Bible tells us that the serpent and the serpent's descendants would be at enmity with the woman and her descendants, and there would be one who would come from the descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Every time you see this imagery all through the Bible, it is an indicator of those two sides. There are the descendants of the serpents, and there are those who are descendants of the woman and the seed of the woman, those who are in Christ. 
When he calls them vipers, he's saying, you're on the dark team. He did this in John chapter 8. You're on the dark team. You're on the dark side. And by doing this work of decorating the tombs of the prophets, you witness that your fathers rejected me. And in that very moment, they were rejecting Jesus, doing the exact same thing to Jesus that their fathers did to the prophets who Jesus sent. And in that moment, they are filling up the end of all that was coming upon them. There was a self-deception They were self-deceived. There's a place here for evaluation. When we read this passage, is there anything that we are doing that's self-deceptive, that's shutting the door of the kingdom in the faces of people? Am I self-deceived in any way? Am I participating in any activity that actually is undermining the kingdom of God? Only you can answer that question. I have to answer it for myself. You have to answer it for you. Because the call is to make disciples of Rome, the state of Georgia, the United States of America, and all the nations of the world. And is there anything that's hindering and undermining the advancement of the kingdom? There are prophets today crying out in the wilderness. Do you hear them? Do you listen to them? The Eric Masons, the Charlie Dates, the Jamar Tisbys, the Esau Macaulays. Are you listening? God has sent prophets to us he's speaking to us do you care about the things I care about or are you just more interested in padding your nest we have a mission and that mission is to disciple the nations and it has to come by us knocking down barriers that we have perhaps constructed that are keeping people out so application number one we have to self evaluate I believe the Holy Spirit is in this room because if I were by myself, he would be here. When you take that Matthew 20, that Matthew 18, 20 passage and you read it wrongly, can I just tell you what you're doing when you read it and say that where two or three are gathered, Jesus is now there because there are two or three. You've turned a beautiful truth of Deuteronomy 15 into witchcraft. You're saying that we've conjured Jesus' presence by numbers. You don't need to conjure Jesus' presence with numbers. You know why? Because He gave you and me the Holy Spirit so that when I'm alone in the morning at 5 o'clock, walking my dog and praying and singing to the Lord, He is just as present with me than if we're in a room of 5,000 people singing our favorite worship song. I don't need two more people that moment. He's alive and He's present. He's physically, tangibly present with me and I'm addicted to it because it's the treasure hidden in a field. He's the pearl of great price. The resurrected Christ is alive and he will meet with you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? This is real. This is legit. Right? And so we have to self-evaluate. We have to come to these places because is there anything keeping me from the Lord? Is anything keeping me from my city? Is there a barrier of my evangelism? Am I misusing the scriptures in any way? Am I teaching something that's causing the atmosphere to be funky? Am I doing things that's causing the atmosphere to be funky when people aren't coming in? People aren't coming in, guys. Our city's lost. It's lost bad. We have a call to go and share this good news and make disciples. So we've got to self-evaluate. And then after we self-evaluate, number two, we have to repent if necessary. No evangelistic effort on our part is going to succeed in God's eyes, when we're doing things to shut the door in people's faces. Holiness is the key. 
Walking with the Lord is the key. He providentially moves through our lives as we walk with Him, but we have to evaluate and repent if necessary. I found more good happens in my home, in my life, when the Lord shows me sin and I turn from it than if I have great tools in my tool belt to work with. Number three, seek out ways to see if the Lord would actually do Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 37 and 38 with us. I encourage you to go look at that passage. God gave us that passage as a promise before this church was ever planted. I've preached on it periodically throughout our history. I want you to go read that passage and see what you would do in seeing the Lord bless us with that passage. Give you a little hint. It starts out like this. Thus, I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. Man. When God says, hey, open invitation, come ask me for this. It is foolish not to go ask for it, <laughs> right? I guarantee if I asked my sons, to, or if I told my sons that, hey, come ask me for a brand new F-350 diesel King Ranch. They wouldn't go, hmm, let me sit back and meditate on that. They'd be all up on me. Oh, Dad, I love you so much. Give me that F-350. And I'll be like, yes. God says, here it is. This I'm going to let you ask me to do for you. Go read it and ask him and then get after it. How cool would that be, right? That would be awesome. And then finally, worship the Lord in obedience and in singing praise to the one who's made a way for us. Three Rivers Church, I recognize that singing to the Lord is difficult on the backside of prophetic passages. And I know who I am. I know that I'm a prophetic person. Not my, all of the teaching I do comes out of a prophetic heart. I see details, and I see things that don't match, and it drives me insane. Like Jeremiah the prophet said, there's a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. That's my daily existence. If I said half the things that I feel like God's put on my heart, they wouldn't nobody be here, and y'all would have killed me by now. Just like they did those cats back then. So I know it's hard to come and sing songs after you've heard prophetic words. I get it. But that's exactly what the Lord calls us to do. When he sends the prophets, he does that so that people will come worship. Because we can't worship when things are standing in the way of our worship. And so, deal with the Lord and sing to him. Worship, listen, you can worship your way out of junk. And how you do that is turn from sin and sing to him. And sing to him when nobody sees. And then when you come in here, you can sing and it'll count. And then we'll have some, some stuff happen up in here. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to practice obedience by singing to the Lord. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will help us, help us to make much of you in song. Because you call us to. And I pray, Father, that you will do a work of grace in our hearts right now. To be able to properly self-evaluate. Fill us with your spirit to see and know what you would have from us. I pray that you would move in our hearts in such a manner that we don't have an option but to turn to you and turn from darkness. But even in this moment, I ask that you would move in us in such a manner that our obedience would be robust, be rich. And for lack of a better term, the energy would be ripe because you are the treasure in a field. And when we find that kind of richness, we cannot help but have some manner of joy that produces joyful obedience. Would you do that in us, we pray.